0: And welcome to Jazz and Grass, and other stuff too. This is our podcast. We do it every week, and when I say we, it's me and my good friend, Marcel.
1: Hey folks, how you doing? We talk about guitar stuff. It's, uh, it's pretty ill-structured.
0: There's no structure. Also, my name's Lyman, I forgot to, to mention that.
1: Oh, you have a name too. I think you've forgotten to mention your name in the last one, actually. Uh that that sounds like something I would do for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of neat because in this episode we're uncovering mysteries that we laid out in the previous episode. We're we're kind of we're doing what Lost never did. We're answering we're answering the mysteries <laughs> that we set up.
0: Did did you ever watch Lost like really get in go down that rabbit hole?
1: Yeah, I did. I watched Lost up to uh oh man, when they find like the bunker, what what do they call it? The hatch? The hatch, yeah, man. After the hatch, I mean, things were getting kind of weird for me. I didn't, uh, I didn't continue.
0: Well, you missed out
1: on the time travel season. Oh man, and see, I would have loved that too. (laughs) I'm a huge Back to the Future fan, and I assume Lost just, you know, it was all basically Back to the Future.
0: I really like Lost's uh, mechanics of time travel. Like everything, always happened. If it if it if somebody went back in time, they always went back in time. Like there is no changing the past.
1: Right. I think that's, you know, I uh even though this is a guitar podcast, I love that we're talking about this. I think that in terms of uh time travel, you know, uh media, that's considered like your real standard kind of straightforward steak and potatoes time travel, right? And I think that when people Mm -hmm. play looser with the rules, it's kinda you you understand that you're existing in that universe and And you're just gonna play ball. I mean, like in Back to the Future. I mean, they just kind of make it up as they go. Like whatever they want. You know, like Marty ruins his like family, and like then just like days later, he slowly starts disappearing from the photograph, and it's like, hey, why did why did that take so long?
0: (laughs) Yeah, like the Back to the Future time travel mechanics. It's like there's only one universe, but it can be changed, uh, and i i I'm a fan of like multiverse theory as well. like if you go back in time, like it creates another branch of of time,
1: yeah, right. And then if you have to change anything, you have to go back to that point where it converges, you know, so you can like fix what happened if you don't want to be on a certain path,
0: yeah, <laughs> so th- this is now a time travel podcast. <laughs>
1: You know, and the funny thing is, is I pitched that to Lyman. Like when we started out, I was like, oh man, hey, we should do this time travel podcast. Let's forget about all that guitar crap. And Lyman was like, oh, that's a horrible idea. Let's do the guitar thing. And look at where we are now.
0: (laughs) So I guess time travel is other stuff too today.
1: Um, uh, If anyone's wondering about my other favorite reoccurring segment, today Lyman is drinking out of a blue cup. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you're taking notes at home, (laughs) Lyman, (laughs) Lyman just spilled water in his lap trying to show me the cup. (laughs) That's great, man. I love that. Anyway, let's, let's get into what we're going to talk about today. Do you want to introduce this? This is your idea. You have to take ownership of this thing.
0: Dangerous stuff, uh, simple stuff, but like, uh, a, a little bit dangerous in the hands of younger or newer musicians. Um, stuff that, like, simple comp- concepts seemingly to grasp. Like, oh, a scale with five notes. Dope. I can play that over everything. And that's where you get into trouble.
1: Yeah, it's it's a, it's a cool thing because there's so many things that we learn as beginners that... Uh we, we kind of use as crutches and we use all the time even though we don't really know how to use them yet um, I think the only thing that we should say about this before we get going is that there's nothing wrong with doing these things these are things that everyone just has to go through these are like growing pains we're all beginners at some point and we're all going to abuse some of these things and all you can hope for is that at some point you grow out of it
0: <laughs> Hmm. for sure I'll give you a, an example real quick The blues scale. Um, danger lurks in the blues scale, and I think, in particular, one area. Um, say you're playing the A blues scale. Usually, when you you go into you know your high school jazz band, whatever you're, you're starting to learn about jazz. You you you'll start with a simple form like a twelve bar blues, um, which is A seven, D seven, A seven, and you're you're told you can use the blues scale over over these chords, which um, it's kind of true. Yeah, technically, <laughs> like you you can do some real interesting things. Like you could, yeah but in my opinion you gotta like that's the foundation that note uh the major third and the blues scale doesn't contain that a blues scale uh does not contain c sharp which is a pretty vital chord tone over a7
1: yeah in my in my lessons in my teaching i call that the dirty third there is um the, the movement of moving from uh, a minor third to a major third I call it the dirty third and it's really important to include I mean you can create a bluesy sound but it doesn't make sense if you never reference the chord that's actually happening underneath at some point
0: yeah a- absolutely um I mean great lines can come out of the blues scale I mean look at all great blues guitar uh but it, it it's one it's one of those things um you can play a blues lines for days but the the context is this sort of movement um over over the the four chord we're we're in the key of a uh d7 uh uh a blues actually works pretty well it gives you a, a d sus seven sound um but yeah, again that note you're, you're that missing that, note the
1: that major was third. a per- sorry man the note that was a problem that like c natural note a hey, instead of now being like the flat third of the chord now it's that dominant seventh so it works out it's fine it's not a problem. Um, But, I mean, if you want to be a real stickler for it, I mean, you could alter the scale in another place, too, to honor the chord better, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
1: in that you're not honoring the third of the chord anymore, right? Just like you said, it's now, like, suspended. So, I mean, I think that's what we're pointing at. Like, as you go over different chords, the scale potentially has to be altered for it to work over those chords.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. When teaching blues, like what I like to do is just go over the arpeggios of the the chords uh, first thing. You got your one three five and flat seven. And I'm a I'm a jazz nerd, so when I'm playing blues, I instead of going five four one. Uh, at the turnaround i go 251 uh so um i i would first teach all of the arpeggios and then i would uh sort of go go over like just some simple voice leading stuff like this a7 shell voicing to this d7 shell voicing uh you have these two harmonic color notes that are changing. So, um like I I, I would build my line to kind of outline that change, like um and I mean like who, who am i kidding i play i play blues licks all the time uh, I'll, I'll give you an example outlining some changes and uh playing some uh blues licks to to complement those those lines mm-hmm. Something like that. Does that make sense to you, Marcel?
1: Yeah, it does. I think that, you know, you you can get as in depth into it as you want um, to make it more and more (laughs) sort of, you know, complicated or a complete theory. But, you know, one important thing to mention when we're talking about the one chord and the four chord, when they're like in the blues like that, is that there's some really interesting voice leading happening. And you said it right there in those shell voicings. But if you want to talk about specifically, when you go to one to four, the third of the one chord, moves up to be the root note of the four chord right which is big it's something we want to point out right um you know and that that just like you said that's kind of the crux of your line that's what you want to point out is that those things are changing the other one that you might notice i mean if you're thinking about blues like that is that the dominant seven of the one chord um, could shift down and become the uh third of the four chord uh, mm-hmm. right? You, you can point out all of these small half-step movements to make your line stronger. Whereas if you're just slamming away at that A minor or pentatonic or blue scale, whatever you want to call it, um, you're going to be uh, ignoring those nuanced kind of approaches that show that you know what chord you're playing over.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and like the place to me where I think the the blue scale really shines is just over a minor chord. Yeah. Um, you can if you if you have like A minor, you can play that that blues scale all day, and you're going to be honoring all chord tones. Um, but you, it 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 can be technically correct over a dominant chord, but also sometimes it can be t- technically incorrect. It's it's a context deal. I have a feeling in the the weeks to come we're going to be referencing context a whole lot. I know we <laughs> did last week.
1: Yeah. Well, this is this is cool because what you started with there is kind of like an early jazz concept, right? You know. It's kind of an early bluegrass concept, too, but normally that's not where lessons start. But, you know, there's a lot of genres that come out of this kind of blues thinking, and it helps a lot to understand it. In fact, I would say that a lot of improvisers that are good jazz musicians or good bluegrass musicians probably could be better at the blues, and it would help their playing a lot. Um, I know that I've personally heard a lot of great jazz musicians say things like, you know, uh, like, that's, that's my greatest weakness. Like, I wish I was better at playing a simple blues without... You know, having to go dip into all kinds of other stuff to make it interesting, right? Like, you know, can I play less in that blues kind of context and still make everything make sense?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm I'm extremely weak when it comes to the blues. Um. I don't I don't know where I was going with that. I just wanted to take a dump <laughs> on myself a little bit. I guess.
1: <laughs> That's good, man. What What I was gonna say is that what I wanted to talk about in in terms of like people finding these simple things that they think are really useful and then using them incorrectly um, comes from an early bluegrass standpoint, and it's the exact same deal. A lot of times when people learn early bluegrass stuff, the thing that they start learning is the major scale. And it makes sense because there's a lot of fiddle tunes that use the major scale and sound like the major scale, and you think that that would be a good place to start, but in reality, it's, it's kind of not. Those, those tunes are constructed pretty carefully. If we take kind of like an early American tune, like uh, something like... Uh, right, something like that, that uses the major scale. That's all major scale. You're not going to find any other weird notes in that melody. I guess you could argue that there's some pickups. But I wouldn't I wouldn't argue that super strong. Um, it's all major scale stuff, and it's purposefully picking these notes from the major scale that work over the chord at hand. And th- I think that's the biggest problem. And the one that I hear all the time, um, and I'm sorry for calling you guys out, but I tend to hear it from fiddle players because a lot of fiddle players come from uh, classical music and they know the major scales and they think that they can just use them over all the chords and it doesn't work out that way and what I hear a lot is in a bluegrass scenario when we have this big old G chord you have um, you know a fiddle player who's using the major scale who's you know playing and you keep hearing this major 7 note over our big old G chord, our <laughs> F sharp note over our G chord there's nothing wrong with that sound Lyman knows that's a um, a major seven chord. I mean, it works in you know other genres and other situations, but in bluegrass, that's probably not what we want. And you can accidentally create that by playing the major scale. Another thing that you can do that you know wouldn't work out specifically would be like playing the fourth of the scale over the one chord. So if you're playing that C note over the G chord. <laughs> You, If you do it purposely, it's really beautiful and it's really cool and you've created a nice suspension. If you do it accidentally, it can sound really strange if you're just sitting on that note while someone's playing a G chord. Um, and it's just, oh, it's such a frustrating thing. But it's the exact same situation. We're talking about taking a scale and then you have to use it over chords and only certain parts of the scale are going to work over certain chords.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's talk about that, that C note in the key of G because... Uh, it's, it's my favorite note to play but where you use it and where you put it is extremely important yeah um, definitely you gotta be real intentional about that uh, the use of that C chord um, C note sorry um, say I'm playing just G I'll I'll do a lot of stuff like that. Uh I'll give uh, essentially I'll be substituting a beat of G sus seven, uh when I'm when I'm thinking of constructing my lines and I'm playing something like that.
1: Um Yeah, but you know, it's um uh you're you're right you're like use of it is important in that you're you're kind of passing through that note you're not uh you're not like grinding away at that note and you're not you're not like hitting it over and over again you're not uh, leaning on it is the word improvisers use a lot you're not leaning on that note too hard you you just happen to pass through it i feel like
0: mm. it it's got a real strong sound of wanting to go home uh this note is not home that note is home in the key of uh g um one of one of my favorite ways to use the, the C note is go up to uh that uh that sharp eleven, the
1: flat five. Um Yeah, I can use that if you're walking to a five chord.
0: Yeah. Um and even in, in jazz, like I would like if there's a major tonality, I would consider uh the in the key of G C sharp as a consonant sound over the um tonic chord, the one chord uh gives you see that kind of sound. This chord has one, three, six, nine, and sharp eleven.
1: For those uh for those music nerds out there that uh it's you know a sharp four, if if you want to talk about it that way, it creates like a, a Lydian sound, right? Lydian? Yeah, Lydian. Um <laughs> 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 Mode names, man, they're so easy to mix up and then you just look like a jerk.
0: <laughs> yeah, don't want to mix the Lydian.
1: <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh music humor.
0: Uh, um Yeah, like I
1: think Yeah, but I mean it Go ahead, go ahead.
0: I, I I think of that uh in the key of G. That's totally a consonant sound to me. Um Um, so if, if, if you're sh- playing jazz and struggling with, uh, um, the key of G major playing, uh, over the one chord, uh, a good scale to use would be D major. Cause that'll give you, uh, mm-hmm. G Lydian. But again, like that's, that's dangerous knowledge. You, you see the key of G, uh, don't think oh i can play d major and it's going to be kosher well what well, what happens when you get to like uh a minor or d7 um things can yeah, get a you weird. you can
1: paint you, you can paint yourself into a lot of corners just by like making that your number one philosophy you can't do that that can't be the only thing you think um and and i made that mistake actually as like a uh, a young improviser i remember thinking that like i remember it it wasn't it wasn't lydian it it was uh what we just joked about it was mixolydian and i remember hearing oh yeah you can use that over dominant chords and it sounds kind of bluesy but it contains more of the major scale right and i thought that was great i thought mixolydian was super interesting and tons of uh you know tons of bluegrass musicians use that kind of thinking but you you can't just apply that to every chord It, it holds a lot of weight and uh, for a while there, I was thinking like, oh, when I see a G chord, like, oh yeah, I can play C major over that. It just doesn't work like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, m- modes to me are just, uh, they're a real interesting thing. Like when, when you see two five one 5, in, in, let's just use a key of G for, for the time being. Uh, you have A minor 7, D7, seven, uh, G major. Uh, they'll say... I've heard people say use A Dorian over the A minor, use D Mixolydian over the D seven, and then use G major, G Ionian over the G chord. Well, it's all G Ionian. Um, that's all. All of those modes relate <laughs> yeah. back to G major. Um, so that that's confusing to me. Like, why would I think of? Uh, different names for this one scale is it because you i want to start on i i I don't want to start on the root notes a lot of the time um so so i I think with improvising it's just super important to use chord. just know what the chord tones are and, and and have good fingerings for them and know them all throughout the neck um
1: it's, it's it's very true. I mean, it's, it's basically the first lesson I ever give when I start talking to people about improvising is, you know, we talk about, you know, what do you know? How are you using it? And almost without fail from, you know, younger players or, you know, beginning players, I hear that they have one approach and that they're using it over every chord. And, you know, they... It's important to start modifying that approach for every chord that you're over. Even... You know, for instance, if you're using the G major scale, yeah, you could use that to play over all the chords that would be natural in the key of G. But you would have to think about it very differently, and that doesn't mean trying to like name all the modes while you're improvising. I don't think that that really helps. But I, I think just like you're saying, just knowing the chord shapes and knowing the arpeggios and knowing, you know, how the shapes work and how they relate to each other, I think is much more useful.
0: Mm-hmm. Like A minor seven and D seven. Uh. A minor seven has a G. D seven has an F sharp. Uh, that that F sharp leads very nicely to, or that G leads very nicely to F sharp. Um, those are the things I look for when I when I see a set of changes. Um, the the legitimate changes. What changes? Is that is yeah. that is that why they call them changes?
1: <laughs> oh man we're really breaking through for lyman right now oh wow <laughs> uh, but yeah you can see that a lot of times when chords are altered too they're they're either altered to like heighten what's changing or they're altered to like make what's changing uh, smaller you know for, for instance if you take like that 251 and you have like an A minor 7, D7 seven, and back to like G major seven or G six or whatever, um, you you can alter that in a lot of ways to make that you know uh, more of a grind or less of a grind. Like if you take that A minor seven chord and you make it an A minor six chord, it's going to have a lot more in common with that D seven or D nine chord that comes after it, and your you know your approach changes because hey, then you're basically playing over the same chord for you know two parts of the progression. Mm-hmm. Um, Or, I mean, you can alter that chord in a way that makes that change much more wild if you put, like, in that D7 chord, if it had a sharp 9 or a flat 9 or something, well then, hey, there's a lot more to say right there to make that change stand out.
0: Yeah, I I could play a couple examples. Um, A minor 11. uh, So that's just an A minor shell voicing. A, G, C, D. It's got the D on top, and then seven flat nine to G major 13 uh, so you got um, and you got you, you got your basic shell voicings along with this nice melodic movement up top um, and you can do that in reverse as well so a minor seven. D seven flat nine, uh, G G major seven. Um, you can also it's, continue going mm-hmm. up. <laughs> That's nice. I, I got a ton it's of different of examples for that.
1: <laughs> it's kind of scary knowledge, and I'm not sure I want to impart it. Just like you just said, but the idea of creating the tensions and creating the chords as more uh more lively in some way or less lively in some way is something that you can do as an improviser too i mean if the changes aren't that dangerous you can certainly still play over them like they are more dangerous right there's no reason why the music the sheet music couldn't say d7 or d9 or some kind of safe choice and you couldn't turn that you couldn't include sharp nines and flat nines over that and make it more interesting
0: mm-hmm. absolutely like um Let's take the tune, So What? Like, that's pretty much just D11. Um, D minor
1: 11. Is that that, is that that tune that goes, so what? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but a lot of times when I'm playing that tune, I'll think of, like, a, a bar of D minor 7 and then a minor 2-5 back to D7. Like... Um, I'll I'll superimpose changes, uh, all the time, uh, especially like over static tonic chords. Um, I'll add two fives. Um, I'll, I'll move it in minor thirds. Um, there's a ton of different ways you can, you can alter it, but I, I think it comes all the way back to just knowing what the chord tones are and knowing where the, where these things change,
1: uh, What's the um the, the really common one is when you have like a static one chord and people put a turnaround on it. What's there's a name for that too. What's that? What's that called? Oh, like if we just had like if the tune just had this written, but instead I played. <laughs> right? Isn't there a name for that set of changes when you add that um turnaround? Oh man. Well, yeah, it's a turnaround, um, but... Um,
0: oh, God. I, I just call that a
1: 1625. Um, now I can't think of it. Now I'll never think of it.
0: We we will never know. We will never know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, is there are... there There, like, is a lot of... In jazz music, there is a lot of, like um superimposing more changes into a moment. So that way you can include more chord tones, you know, them being chord tones that you've just manufactured in the moment, but they still work. Um, it's actually one of the funny things that happens when jazz musicians play bluegrass is that there isn't a lot of changes. You have to, you might have to play over a static chord for a long time and bluegrass musicians don't add more changes. They play to that chord for uh, a long time and you hear a lot of jazz musicians struggle with that because they want to put more changes in so they have more arpeggios and more like chord tones and more other things to grab. They're just not used to playing over like six bars of a G chord with nothing else going on and no way to impose anything else interesting on it.
0: That that sounds like a nightmare for me. Um, I know like two licks in G, and then after that, I need to go to other chords, man. After that, I'm spent. I'm done.
1: After that, you need to go to Jazz and Grass and look at literally every single one of my licks that's in the key of (laughs) G. I
0: think I may just do that.
1: (laughs) Anyway, let's uh, kind of drop the music theory stuff. Let's get into some technique stuff that can be tough for beginners. Mm
0: -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So one thing I wanted to talk about was um, uh, the the pick stroke thing. A lot of times people, uh, when they start learning, will say, hey, well, you know, pick strokes, there's no reason why we have to put a format to this. I mean, if it makes sense for me to do two downs in a row or two ups in a row or whatever else, I should just do that. And... The funny thing is is that's not wrong. I mean there's there's nothing wrong with that kind of thinking. E- economy picking is good. Lots of good players use it. In fact, I would argue that everyone uses it and, and you know, in some contexts. Very few times do you meet people that are such strict alternate pickers that they won't, you know, at some point include a double down or a double up. But the problem is is that when you start doing that as a beginner, you try to do that in all places and in all forms and in all in some places where it doesn't even help you. And uh, you end up getting a really inconsistent ta- sound from your instrument because, you know, maybe you're on the same string and you put two ups in a row for no reason, and then the line feels really strange because, you know, no matter what we do, inevitably a downstroke and an upstroke are going to sound slightly different.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm like one of those uh, real, real staunch supporters of economy picking. Uh. But I wasn't always an economy picker. Um, There wasn't really much rhyme or reason to what my my picking tech technique was when I when I started playing for like the first six years of when I was playing. Uh, But yeah, like I'll I'll use economy picking like ninety percent of the time. But if it's not gonna help me, then I I'll I'll do something different.
1: (laughs) yeah well it's kind of like uh, I feel very Uncle Ben about it I feel very uh, with great power comes great responsibility and sometimes it helps people who are starting out to stick to alternate picking just to have consistency and then at some point be like hey you can do this too and then they're playing is stronger for the sake of having gone through the motions like everyone else like all of us
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for sure um, I had a thought
1: It'll come back to you. Just uh, just work through it. <laughs>
0: uh, you got any more to say, like as far as like that alternate uh, versus economy picking? Because I have a couple. I think I have a couple ideas on pick technique.
1: Yeah. So there's um there's there's a really common example in bluegrass, and it's kind of uh, the great divider of how people think about um. Uh, what kind of picking they want to do and uh, you'll find people that have different opinions about this all over but it's about uh, the term uh, cross picking it's really popular in bluegrass it's basically where you have a different part of a chord on every string and you create a repeating pattern that goes through them so for instance a really common one over like a G chord or a G7 chord would sound like this It's very like ragtimey right mm-hmm. um but uh uh people will either alternate pick that or they'll use a pattern like down down up and what i was just doing right now when i played it was i was using down down up and it's one of those instances where i would rather use a pattern to make that more more accessible i i think that i think that you can get more speed out of the down down up in that case
0: uh, i was trying to fumble through that and that, that's something where i would go down 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 uh. Pretty much the the entire thing. Maybe that's why I can't play it very well. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, the reason why I would do that is because when I when I go down down and I hit the next up, it's already putting my pick in the motion to return to doing the down down motion, right? So I'm. It's not only about conserving the motion; it's about making it so the motion repeats and. You know, you're conserving as much energy as possible every time you play it.
0: How do do you get that upstroke? Like, what muscles are you using in your hand?
1: Um, I feel like it's more like my forearm is, like, popping up, you know, to return to the place that it was. Um, I don't feel like it's any special hand motions more. Um, it's, it's a weird bluegrass thing I mean, we could talk about it forever But, you know, the interesting thing is that I, um, um, I actually do it the, the other way I will use alternate picking If the line is descending So let me just come up with another line If I had another line that was going down the strings like this I'm just holding down a C chord But um, if, if I had a line like that I would alternate all that and I don't know why that is, um but I, I find something about the pattern of down down or up up, down, and then returning pretty difficult to use and there is a famous bluegrass musician that uses that uh Jesse from Jim and Jesse is a mandolin player who does that all the time. It's just a weird thing to hear. it's uncommon anyway, yeah, but I feel like when you're when you're in a situation like that where you have some kind of pattern um then I would use it a lot more and um of course, if you want another bluegrass example, the other famous one is um the tune uh. Uh, Trip Street Blues by Tony Rice, which has a really cool melodic cross-picking sound. It sounds like this. And there's there's so much going on in that, and you're playing so many chord tones on different strings that the only way to really accurately get those out is by including some double downs, and some double ups. And it's something that uh, messes up a lot of bluegrass players because bluegrass players do use a lot of alternate picking and then it's like, alright, there's this one standard this one famous tune, but to play it you have to use some economy picking and man, if you uh, if you want to hear some people mess up how a guitar part goes, Church Street Blues is a great example there's so many people who are like kind of close, but it just doesn't sound right
0: As, as, as far as pick technique goes and uh, th- I feel like this this one's going to bridge our next topic a little bit, um, swing, swing time, and swing articulation. Uh, oh yeah, and and I have some 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 thoughts on on this. Uh, so, so, I'm I'm pretty opinionated on this one. Um, you when when you again when you go into when you enter your high school jazz band and you see you you look at the sheet music and it says two eighth notes equals Quarter note triplet, eighth note triplet. I think that is in ninety percent of the cases wrong, <laughs> wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, um, I'll, I'll, I'll play play like that for a second. Just play like a line. <laughs> and there, there's nothing like really inherently wrong with that especially at that tempo um but we'll, we, what you'll find uh especially with young young players seeing quarter note triplet tied to eighth note triplet is something a little bit more akin to to this <laughs> the 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 accents are on the the, the downbeat
1: and um That sounded almost like a um, uh, 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 a dotted eighth note tied to a sixteenth note, or rather, beam to a sixteenth note. Yeah,
0: yeah. Like, I'll I'll use that like a lot more than I use a a quarter note triplet tied to, or tied to eighth note triplet. Um, uh, I, I think that like get gets that point across a little bit more. S- severely and can be used for, for greater effect. But that the the problem with the quarter note triplet eighth note triplet is the accents do not lie on the, the the quarter note. Most of the time, the eighth notes are supposed to be accented the the ands. And because of that, you can actually get away with some some really interesting stuff playing eighth notes that are almost completely even. Um. Um. To me, swing is is all about articulation, Uh, especially playing swing on the guitar. Um, Plucking more up notes than you are... Uh, up, up beats than you are down beats and hammering on, pulling off on some, some of the, the down beats. Um If you can really nail that articulation, like playing completely even, like something like... That's a little bit difficult with uh, string crossings. Uh, you, you can't hammer. Well, well, you can, but it's difficult to play a coherent line. Like you're not. You're not going <laughs> to have that hammer on um, yeah. all the time. Uh, so, like swing lines. I'll. I'll I will often act heavy, heavy accents where I think they they need to be. Like,
1: um. So, so when you're when you're when you're doing this, I mean, like, um, I don't know. Did you in in high school uh, jazz band? Shout out to our high school band teachers. Um, Woo. Um, Do you remember doing, I remember doing like a vocal exercise where we had to like um, vocalize how swing feels, just doing like consistent eighth notes. And um, I'm going to sound like an idiot. And this is great because I just did a YouTube video that was all me like singing quietly to myself sounding like an idiot. But I remember us doing an exercise where we were just doing like do, da, do, da, do, da, do, da. And the whole point was just that you would like actually feel that the. It, it's almost like the the pulse that you're tracking, and that's really uh, important. Maybe not the pulse that you're tracking, but the the you know the beat that's really important is the off beat, is the and, mm-hmm. and you know, and not not only is it important, but it's like it's it you know it's not time aligned, it's not on the grid, so everyone has to work together to feel this thing in some alternate place. And I think in any way trying to take that swing feel and say, hey, it is like a triplet or it is like a dotted 8-16th is just a, a wrong kind of way to look at it.
0: Yeah, it's it's to me 100% wrong, but it's an easy way to get a bunch of uh, 14 to 18-year-old kids to play something relatively similar at dark o'clock, like way too early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so like, yeah, I right. get why it's why it's done but um i I think the good exercise like the best exercise i went to a clinic and saw this one time from from a saxophone player she played even eighth notes articulating every upbeat um and if, if you can really nail that sort of sort of sound giving a little bit extra to the the upbeat you don't have to shift the the eighth note division too much. Um, yeah. I was told swing eighth notes are somewhere between 50-50 and 75-25. Um, and it will vary between the tempo. But something like 55-45 with proper articulation, I think that's, that's swinging as all hell. I may be wrong, but <laughs> that, that's... That's how I play, and that—that's how I—I I, I like the sound. That's—that's that's what I hear
1: in my head. So, what if you? What if we open up this idea a little bit more? And we're just talking about time. You take, um, you know, what you're talking about is like swing tempo is really hard for like you know to nail, or uh, swing time is hard to nail when you're like just starting out. It's hard to internalize that if you're not used to it, right? And mm-hmm. um, it's actually probably better that they are teaching it to kids and stuff, they'll probably have an easier time trying to internalize that and get used to it. But um, if, if we just talk about time in general, time is another thing that's really hard to nail for people who are starting out. And a lot, a lot of people who are starting out will say, you know, that they, that they have loose time or that they, they'll even use words like sloppy in trying to say that that's part of their style. And I think that that's detrimental to your playing ability as well. I mean, it's like it's like taking something and saying I can't do this very well. So the way that I'm doing it currently is just how I'm always going to do it, and that's that's me. Wrong, wrong. <laughs> And of course, you know, coming from a couple of guitar nerds, of course, we're going to say like, hey, wouldn't it be better if you could do it any way that you wanted, if you could do it always, and then based on the scenario, you can decide if you're going to play really loose and kind of sloppy and all over time-wise, or if you're going to be locked to the grid, you know, playing consistent eighth notes, or if you're going to swing them, or if you're going to, uh, you know, drag that and, or if you're going to rush that and, or if you're going to, there's so many things. Also, yeah. uh, on the subject of bluegrass too, just because you were thinking about swing and I was thinking about this, it's cool because the bluegrass beat, you know, that we call a boom check, that's boom check, boom, check, boom, check, boom, check when you're going fast and you feel it. Um, the chuck is rushed. So the our ands in and bluegrass tend to be pushed. Um, so they happen just before where they should happen. And it's it's the exact same kind of feeling where our our downbeats, you know, our one, two, three, four happens where it should happen. That's you know. I guess in some genres that's changed, but, you know, we, we feel that pulse, but our and is actually the important thing that makes it feel like the music, you know, what makes, what makes bluegrass drive, what makes it feel like it's constantly rushing, even if it's not, is the uh, preemptive eighth note, you know, in, in the and slot, just always coming a little bit too early. And then it feels like the band's always rushing, even if the band's always in time. And um, it's, uh, it's also a really hard thing to nail. People want to play bluegrass and they just play consistent 16th notes and it doesn't, groove like you would expect it to I just call bluegrass music groovy I don't think anyone's ever done that before
0: (laughs) well everything has a groove but yeah time is like to me it's just about control like everything I do in music is about control of my control over the harmony my control over like what I can execute and like it it is cool to play real sloppy sometimes and real, real draggy. Uh, but I think without a foundation of really, really solid time, uh, the point just gets lost and you're playing bad. Yeah. Um. You should always start, in my opinion, from a solid foundation. And with time, that's real even eighth notes, with a metronome, really, even any notes with a metronome. Like you cannot get enough metronome.
1: I had a good criticism when I was when I was younger. I was taking drum lessons, and um, and we would we would uh, trade fours. Me and my drum teacher and i i remember him having harsh words about um you know afterwards we would talk about just these four measure phrases that we played um and this was only like very much towards the end of when i was playing and there was a time that i did play something kind of sloppy and it was you know it it, it wasn't in time and it wasn't swung it was just all over the place i'm sure um and uh He asked me about it and I told him, you know, that that's what I was feeling that I tried to play something sloppy and he said, well, it's not working. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was excellent criticism. I mean, you know, I, it's really easy to like get criticism like that and be like, Hey man, whatever, like that's what I do. And you just don't understand it. But in reality, it's actually kind of good criticism. Someone is telling you, Hey, this, um, this really isn't working for you. And isn't that kind of what we all want? Like if you like, were walking around with your fly down or something, wouldn't you want someone to be like, hey, man, that look is not working for you? <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: just how I dress.
1: <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, man. Anyway, you want to uh, pull up some of the stuff, some of our uh, reoccurring segments here? I feel like we got to talk about what we're listening to right now. And oh yeah. uh, man, I I want to hear you go first because mine's going to be mine's going to be embarrassing. Yours was embarrassing last week, but mine's <laughs> going to be embarrassing.
0: Um I started listening to to real music again. Quote unquote real music. You
1: don't think uh, uh, anime soundtracks are real music? I think they're real music. That's that's my opinion. But that's my interpretation. M- mom always says otherwise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um I've been getting real into Alan Holdsworth. You ever heard of Alan Holdsworth? No, I'm in the dark. Um he recently passed away, like almost a, a little over a year ago from the day we're recording this. Um but he was he was an incredible fusion guitar player. Um had big giant monstrous hands. Um and I I didn't discover him until after he passed away. Um, as did a few, of, a few of my friends, as soon as he passed away, this name started coming up, Alan Holdsworth. And we just really dove deep. Um, well, they really dove deep. I I was kind of late to the party on him. Uh, and his technique and his, his approach to improvisation, uh, basically knowing an entire scale up and down the fretboard in all positions. um, And, and and just being able to grab notes and create interesting patterns from, from anywhere. It's, it's awe inspiring. He was one of the greatest improvisers of our generation, in my opinion. Um, So if you, you've never heard of Alan Holdsworth, check him out. Um, And I've also been listening to George Garzon again. Um, He was the inventor creator of the triadic chromatic approach. I may have talked about it in the last couple of episodes, like briefly. Um, And uh, he's great. Like check him out as well. Uh, But I'll, I'll give a brief breakdown of the triadic chromatic approach. Um,
1: Yeah, do it. I love it. I think it's like just the weirdest thing. And I mean (laughs) that in a good way. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh,
0: Because that's what I've been working on. But uh, I'm not going to give it all away because it it is his. It's his thing, pretty much, totally. But I'll give you a brief rundown and maybe that'll inspire you to go off and try some new interesting things. Yeah. Those are the two main guys I'm listening to.
1: So you're not going to keep us here for like the next two hours talking about how this thing works? (laughs) <laughs> Next section, what we're working yeah. on. And Next section will be will be two hours long. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, um, I've been reading a lot of uh, kind of like science fiction and stuff like that, and uh, I'm a nerd, I know, but I. Um, I started replaying this uh, RPG game that came out for uh, uh, a Sega console in the late 80s. I guess that would mean probably Sega Genesis. The game seems too big for that. It can't be a Genesis game. Anyway, it doesn't matter. This isn't a video game podcast. But I've been playing this game called uh, Fantasy Star 2. It's a great RPG. I highly recommend it for all you um, classic game guitar nerds out there. But while I've been playing it, I thought the only soundtrack that was fitting was Rush. So I've been listening to so much Rush. I've been listening to... Just more than I'd ever like to admit, and I was never really a Rush fan. I feel like that's one of the classic rock bands that I kind of missed out on. You know how sometimes, like, you talk about classic rock stuff, and someone's like a big Kansas fan or something, and you're like, "Oh yeah, Kansas, carry on my wayward son," and uh, that's how I was. That's how I was with Rush, and um, but oh man, I've been loving it. I've and I guess. This isn't really like music theory related or anything as interesting as what Lyman said. I just really love like the whole attitude of it and the whole like um, expression of it. And the funny thing about it was I've, I've been listening to all this Rush and I hopped on Instagram and I found this Jake Workman uh, break that he played. And Jake Workman's a great bluegrass guitar player. If you don't know who that is, you should check him out. He plays guitar for Ricky Skaggs and Kentucky Thunder. But um, he he was in Japan and he borrowed a guitar and he borrowed a pick and he, like, borrowed a strap and everything. And he goes to this jam and he sits in and they're playing a Foggy Mountain Special and he plays a break. And it's, like, the most inspiring flat picking break I've heard in a long time. Not because it's, like, technically impressive or, like, his no choice is really good or anything. It just, like, has all that, like, attitude and punch that I miss sometimes. And I think it's really hard to forget that, like, bluegrass has that and deserves it i mean there's a lot of genres that like have that and should use it more but instead get really caught up in this not that it's bad or anything not that it's not good but they're really like delicate kind of technical i'm going to do everything really precise and everything blah 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 blah. sometimes man isn't it good to just hear someone you know for lack of better word kick ass
0: yeah absolutely
1: (laughs) anyway so that's why i've been loving rush uh you can say what you want about me and about how um, I'm no longer a good bluegrass musician because I'm a Rush fan. But I'm sure you'll still be watching my YouTube videos, and I'll be wearing a Rush shirt as soon as my Amazon order comes in. Did you really get a Rush shirt? <laughs> I actually didn't order one yet, but I've been thinking about it. I was thinking about it in the car when I was coming back here to record this podcast. I was like, man, I got to order a Rush shirt. You know, they got the cool one that's got... It's not a pentagram, but maybe it is a pentagram. You know what? Maybe I can't wear that in bluegrass circles. I imagine the... Uh, you know, any kind of satanic imagery might be, might be, it might be a bad choice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when when I moved down here to Arizona, like and started like a little jazz project, um, this this drummer I was playing with I would always call call it good, clean, wholesome music. <laughs> and <laughs> that that's not the the story I heard about jazz. I heard it was the devil's music.
1: Yeah. Totally. Jazz, jazz is like rough music. Is if you want to talk about like um, your classic like rock and roll stories of like how people lived and died and how they played. I mean, man, go read like a biography about Charlie Parker. That's like <laughs> just just putting it out there. That's that's a pretty rough story in life. I mean, all of them. I like that though. I mean, Miles Davis and everyone else. You can you can get into a lot of a lot of stuff there about how people lived, but. Um, Man, jazz, jazz is not not a clean genre. <laughs> Mm-mm.
0: Uh, take a listen to the lyrics, or go read the lyrics of "Honeysuckle Rose." Uh, particularly the the bridge uh, after the first two verses. It's uh, quite. <laughs> <laughs> at least I
1: took it as quite uh, unsavory. Um, you know, jazz and bluegrass, them being like turn of the century art forms. Have have their fair share of unsavory lyrics. Um if you're looking for more jazz lyrics that are um that are dicey, you should definitely read all the words to Sheikh of Araby as well. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh possible trigger warning there. Seriously though, it's rough. It's not <laughs> it's not good stuff in there. Um Yeah, Bluegrass has a bunch of that too, though. If you listen to um I mean Bluegrass is famous for murder ballads, like And it's funny, it's such a big part of the genre, but I I wouldn't consider like a bluegrass set complete if it didn't have a murder ballad in it. You know, it's just a weird thing that we do. We sing about killing people, normally loved ones, too.
0: That's pretty dope. (laughs) (laughs) That's really metal.
1: Yeah, Um. it is. You know, lots of bluegrass musicians getting in fights back in the day, too. There's some classic uh, first-generation people like uh, Jimmy Martin, who was a famous bluegrass singer. I'm sure you bluegrass fans know. But he, um, there's a little uh, book about him where he, uh, he goes and visits the Grand Ole Opry, which he was never a member of. They never made him a member of. And when they eventually asked him, he was like, you know, screw you guys, it's been too long. I won't even do it now. But um, he shows up. They let him backstage and everything because he's famous. I mean... There's, you can't say no to the guy. He can walk around. He can hang out. It's all his friends. And, um, you know, he's like in his 80s at this point, and he tries to get in a fight with some people, and he's like yelling at people before they go on stage, and he's like obviously intoxicated. He had to have someone else drive his limo there. It's just incredible. The whole story is wonderful. Um, Wait, he was driving his own limo? No, no, no. Someone, <laughs> uh, a, a writer went out to, uh, to interview him, and uh, Jimmy Martin says, all right, we're going to the Grand Ole Opry. And though he's wasted, he puts on this, they're called nudie suits. They're like embroidered suits. They're called nudie suits. He puts on his nudie and they, uh, they get in the limo and Jimmy Martin's like, you're driving. It's this giant like Cadillac limo and the writer has to like figure out how to get it out of the driveway. And then like <laughs> is a chauffeur all of a sudden, not his job. Funny stuff.
0: It's <laughs> <That's> hilarious. <laughs> uh, I, I, I called shotgun one time in a limo. Oh, What happened? It was a mistake. It's actually not even my bit. That never happened.
1: It's a Mitch Hedberg bit.
0: <laughs> Apologize. Rest in peace.
1: Oh man. Anyway, uh, how about we talk about what we're working on right now? Um, I think I think you're going to be doing a lot of talking because I my my what I'm working on was going to be more of a question to you as well. So why don't you go first?
0: Okay. Um. Did I go go over this last week? Uh, the sus seven chords. I know. I know. I went over those. Yeah, you talked about that. Uh, I've been working with the arpeggios of those chords. Um, did I, did I did I touch on that? Because I, I feel like this is a relatively new development for me. No, go ahead. Um, so, like. Uh, that voicing um, uh, would be F sus7, F, C, E flat, B flat. And uh, one way to play that arpeggio would be just like you play the chord uh, starting on the A string, 8, 10, 8 11 um but what i've been trying to do is try to look for for different fingerings for these patterns um this this pattern starts 8 on the the a string 10 on the d string with the second finger 13 on the d string with the fourth finger and uh, 11th on the B string with the second finger. So um, Another voicing, another one of those voicings, arpeggios I've been using is um, that inversion, um, so that'd be up top here. G ten fret A string C ten fret D string seven uh that'd be D seventh fret G string and A tenth fret B string. I've been taking this this voicing uh I'm playing it here three on the E string. On the low E string, that's a G. Three on the low A string, that's a C. Five on the low A string, that's a D. And seven on the the D string, that's a A. And I've been moving moving them up in a in groups of minor thirds. Um, you can do that with the same fingering, or you can. Uh, I use that first fingering and then 6, 6, 3, 5 and then starting on the the A string 4 it's pretty much the same as the first voicing and uh, I've been doing a lot of parallel movement with this particular one on uh on the D B D G B and G B E string sets. Uh, it was cool about the, these voicings um, is there are no minor thirds in them. So if you move them in minor thirds, uh, you'll have four different chords. um, Uh, and that would equaling a total of 16 notes. Um, and when you play through that pattern moving in minor thirds, you get all 12 tones and only four notes are repeated over the course of, uh, say you're playing eighth notes, two bars. Um, so that's a that's an interesting way for me to play sort of outside I can start from somewhere and know I'm going to land somewhere safe like with a little bit of quick quick basic math
1: yeah, it's like a um, it's like a bus you like hop on and a stop and you can like use it to get different places knowing that you can hop off in another location and be okay.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's that's the thing. Um I also discovered another type of sus chord and this has just been driving me crazy with how cool it sounds. Um it's a major 7 sus 2. Uh And I've been messing around with the inversions of this chord. Uh, the the top string set has an inversion which I think is basically impossible to play. Um, it's probably not, but it's really difficult for me. So I, I found a, a little bit of a workaround. Um, this is D major 7 sus 2. Uh, I think they're drop 2 voicings. Um This chord, um, this is the chord that I would say is almost impossible um, to play on those four strings, so I add in the the A string. Seventh fret on A, uh, sixth fret on G, uh, third fret on B, fifth fret on E, so that gives you E, C-sharp, D, A. Your next uh, inversion, 7, 7, 5, 9. That gives you A, D, E, C-sharp. You got some cool uh, close intervals, and you got a cool close interval and a big wide one right here, a major sixth. the next inversion is C-sharp, E, A, D. It's interesting because it's got that flat 9 in it. Um, and that's 11, 9, 10, 10. And then this is where I started losing my mind. This voicing right here. This is 12, 14, 14, Twelve, and if you put a B under it, you get your your B minor nine voicing. And that this sound was a sound I used all the time. I never even thought to check out its inversions. So, uh, and this one's always hard to grab. So I've been exploring those sounds a little bit, and just just small alterations with a with with different minor chords and major chords, making them suspended. Here's a, another. This is like G minor, uh, G minor seven with a raised five. One would
1: be <laughs> um i feel like what's important to take home is that when you like when you find a sound you like or something you enjoy you know don't be satisfied with with the place you can do it like turn it into a system like find it everywhere and make it like you know work on it, incorporating it in such a way that it becomes part of your language in, in a greater sense right
0: yeah absolutely like Thank you for for bringing me back down the earth because I was was about to go off the rails there for a second. Um, Uh,
1: Lyman's La La Land there for a while.
0: (laughs) And I promise I will include tab to all those voicings uh, this time. Um, And I'll go back and put tab.
1: And don't make promises you can't keep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually do have a tab for all this stuff and It'll, all the old stuff, I just never uploaded. It. <laughs> it's, it's there. I just need to do
1: it. Yeah, we'll um, make it happen. Um, dude, what I was going to what I was gonna talk about, what I was going to ask you kind of for my segment was, um, so I watched this video that was um, Tim Pierce. Uh, and Tim Pierce is a great session musician. If anyone doesn't know who that is, you should go watch a bunch of his videos. He sweeps up all the session work for, like, anything that ends up on the radio, whether it's, like, Country, rock, or blues, or anything else—he he plays everything, and he's excellent. But he he did a little video that was talking about, um, uh, you know, like playing through changes. He talks about it all the time and honoring chord tones, and it's such a big part of music that I feel like people who improvise end up talking about that more than anything. But one thing he uh, talked about, which I thought was really cool, was playing blues over changes. So mm-hmm. like, you're in a scenario where you have like a major three chord. Uh, you know, and you're in, you know, like a standard uh, rock song or whatever, maybe you have like a uh, one chord, maybe a flat seven chord, like three and or uh, four and five, and then you have this major three chord. Like, how do you continue that like blues attitude over that chord? And I thought it was such like a cool talk and a cool thing. And it, um, it drew a lot on like guitar techniques. Like, of course, like no matter what, like bending up to the third is going to feel like, bluesy right so even if it's like a new chord in a new situation right you can always like bend up to the third and it's gonna like do a thing right um or you know if functionally the three chord does a certain thing like if it's leading to um like the sixth chord the minor six chord or something then you can like toss a seven on that and you can start turning it into more of like a blues situation but i um i just really like the idea because when we think about blues we tend to think of it as like only kind of applicable over these certain basic chords and when you take it to a greater extent, like, how do you play blues over, you know, a flat six chord or something?
0: <laughs> are you asking me how I would approach that?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my question was going to be, like, how would you take something like that? Like, if we took a weird chord in a normal song, like, how would you try to play blues over that? Because I was trying it personally, and, um, you know, I was using just the stuff that I had said to you right now. And I thought it was just, like, the coolest exercise.
0: Easy, I would run away. I'd run far away. No, just kidding. Um, I don't know, man. Let me see if I can't come up with something. Um.
1: Yeah, because the expectation is is that when that new chord happens, you want to just switch to that blue scale, but you can't do that, right? You want it to still feel rooted in the original key.
0: That... I'm going to have to listen to that talk for sure uh, because, like I said before, I'm a I'm, I'm a very poor blues player. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't know the first thing about approaching that.
1: Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it something? I, I just thought it was cool in that um, it's just something that we don't think about and we don't think of um, ways that you can approach that. Um it's kind of neat when you have weird chords come into a song, whether you're playing blues or major stuff or minor stuff or whatever, because you have to think like, all right, what what notes from the original key can I kind of keep? And then what notes from the chord do I now have to honor that are important, right? And um, just switching scales entirely can sometimes give you some weird results. And if you want re- weird results, that's fine. But if you want to keep it uh, more rooted, I feel like that's the much harder thing to do. Hmm.
0: Like, maybe playing in C. Uh, over that major three chord. uh, Taking the C minor pentatonic and changing the D- G to a G sharp, maybe? Yeah. That's the... I went back like, hmm, what is changing? And... That's the first thing I thought of. So maybe that's somewhere to explore. I don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, that definitely is. Um, I don't know. <laughs> It's so it's so tough, you know. You I feel like when weird chords come up, you want to start incorporating them in a way you know, or you want to make it jazzy, or you want to do whatever. But how do you play blues over it? makes the makes the problem so much harder.
0: <laughs> yeah, especially because I, I have very little blues background. Uh, I know that's really weird as a guitar player not having much blues black background but we're both
1: kind of like that neither neither of us spent a long time playing blues at all in fact i kind of uh, retroactively went back to blues like i started playing bluegrass and i realized that it was such a foundational part of the genre that it was it was dumb to not be able to do in a functional way so i went back and started practicing that cuz i thought it was important right mhm it's
0: probably important for me as a jazz musician, but like I'm a I'm a fan of the modern stuff, like those real open fourthy sounding chords. Um, that's why I uh, like those sus sevens so much. There's lots of fourths there. I like I like wide intervals.
1: You're living that chordal life.
0: <laughs> um, any more on that subject? Because I did make a promise to talk about the TCA a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, why, why don't you just give us a, a little background on that, and then let's, uh, let's wrap this baby up, huh?
0: Cool. Uh, so, the triadic-chromatic approach. You nerd. I'll, I'll, t- <laughs> I'll talk a little bit just about the, the triadic approach today. Um, you have four different types of triads. Major, minor, augmented, and diminished. Diminished. Um so you want to kind of group those into sets. We'll we'll go with major for now. Um play a you you play a major triad and then you have two choices to make based on your last note. Uh you can either go up one half step or down one half step. Major triad with half step in between. Now now Here's where it gets a little bit tricky. That is against the rules for the sake of argument.
1: Uh, you, <laughs> Why is it want, against
0: the rules? <laughs> um, when you choose a new triad, you want the inversion to be uh, different. It, it needs to be a, a uh, not not a repeated inversion. So going up and then down let's see what we have available to us. We have that. Um, we also have... And we have... Now, technically, <laughs> that was the same inversion, but uh, I, wanna, I wanted to get to this. The permutation was different. And... Uh, So this and this are are fundamentally different triads for the the rules of the game. I'm not going to give tab or anything like this for for this stuff. You can figure it out um, because, you know, it's not really mine to give away. But... (laughs)
1: Isn't it that, funny that to like come up to, to like come up with a way to play outside and play weird notes, we need a system? Like we we can't just play randomly. Like that's really hard for a human to do.
0: Yeah, it's it's a system to play random. Like that that's what it's for. It's to to give the the uh it's it's sort of like a little game to to create randomness. Um I guess we'll talk about the the chromatic approach a little bit. Uh, you take one major third, and you have, so this note, this note, you have all the intervals in between. And you don't want to repeat yourself uh, in that respect either. You want to play an interval, then a different interval. And so, combining those two, those two sorts of ideas together, you get.
1: I I, uh, I really hope you find that note you're looking for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a system to play play randomly um and uh, it's a, it's an interesting way to get to new places like where you you may not have uh thought you would get like starting B flat and there I'm back um yeah that's just a small breakdown of the triadic chromatic approach I'm not very good at it but uh, it, it is a huge thing I'm working on right now, just doing it very, very, very
1: slowly. Yeah, it's awesome stuff. Is that the week? Yeah, I think it's time for our sign-off, man. Well,
0: thank you so much for listening, everybody. I'm Lyman. You can find me at com. link in bio. Uh, and that's basically, that'll send you on onto all the
1: other different websites that I live on. And you have such a short outro and then you make me look like a jerk when I get mine. Uh, My name is Marcel The big place you can find me is on YouTube That's Lessons with Marcel Everything is Lessons with Marcel Um, The other big places you can find me are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter And on Instagram I also run, of course, the Jazz and Grass Lick account With Lyman right here And that's a new lick every single weekday And um, you can also check out my website Lessonswithmarcel.com That's where you can go for a bunch of free stuff That has to do with bluegrass And that's also where you can sign up for Skype lessons If you're interested Anyway, that's all I got (laughs)
0: Thank you so much again And uh, we'll see you guys next week
1: Yeah, see you next week